Welcome into the Locked On Knicks podcast, Gavin Shaw, Alex Wolf. You might have heard the New York Knicks lead their Eastern Conference first round series one to nothing over the Cleveland Cavaliers. But how about if they went up two nothing? How would they go about that? We'll tell you right now on Locked On Knicks. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And I think we see Willis coming out. There he comes right now. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, and today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code Locked On. That's prizepicks.com, promo code Locked On. I want to thank you for making Locked On Knicks your first listen today. And every day, um, if you're not aware, uh, now you are, uh, we're available on all platforms, anywhere you can find your podcast. And of course, on YouTube, we went live um, for our latest game recap. Um, but if you missed it, because we did it late at night, instead of putting it out first thing in the morning, uh, go check out our full thoughts on game one. Um, but who wh- whose thoughts are you getting? I'm Gavin Shaw. Your favorite play-by-play broadcaster's favorite play-by-play broadcaster. He's Alex Wolf, editor-in-chief of the Strickland, the greatest Knicks website in the whole wide world. And Alex, um, I thought I thought it was worth talking about how the Knicks could go up 2-0. Because as it turns out, um, I looked it up, um, in NBA history, it's almost impossible to come back from down 2 to nothing. Um, 282 times a team has gone up 2 to nothing in a series. Only 20 times has the team down 0-2 come back to win the series. That translates to about 7%. Shout out to Odd Shark for that stat. But I see this as a golden opportunity for the New York Knicks, right? Game number two, of course, Cleveland's going to be the more desperate team. Of course, in a lot of those series, the teams probably weren't quite as even as the Knicks and the Cavs are. But still, you go back to Madison Square Garden up two to nothing. You have some wiggle room. You only have to win one game at home to be up three to one and then just have three games to win a single game to end the series. So I I look at game two as a monumental opportunity for the Knicks. Yeah. I mean, if they come out 2-0 after this, they would need quite the collapse to, to not end up winning the series. Because as we were talking about after the first game, they really didn't play their best game. They didn't even play anything close to their best game in that first game. You know, Jalen Brunson barely played in the first half. Thanks to foul trouble. Julius Randle came on really strong, but then, you know, in the second half did not have his strongest half of basketball, at least from an offensive perspective. Uh, And which we're going to get into in our first segment here, Emmanuel quickly, Quentin Grimes, RJ Barrett were all basically invisible in that first game. Like they, they made such a little impact on offense. What was their final shooting line again? Was it five of 21? Three for 21. Three for 21. (laughs) Terrible. Just an uh, absolutely awful first game for the three of them uh, in for uh, one of them, their first playoff action ever, but uh, for IQ and RJ, their first playoff action in two years. Um, So I think the first thing that the Knicks really need to prioritize here is getting those three guys going. Um, And maybe this goes against what you just said a second ago about how, how monumental it would be if the Knicks went up to nothing, having their first two games on the road. Uh, and then getting to go home and and you know really 
take charge of the series. But I almost think that getting quickly Grimes and RJ going should be so much of a priority that I don't even necessarily like if it leads to the Knicks giving giving them more opportunities and you know trying to get the the engine rolling and and get them comfortable in this next game and it ends up like losing the Knicks the game. I wouldn't even be heartbroken because to be completely honest, like I, I think that the Knicks based off that first game, if they can get those three guys going or even just two out of the three so that they can have like a closing lineup that has all the shooting and everything that you could want. I think they're really golden against the Cavs in this first series. Like, and maybe that'll make people groan to think like, Oh, well, why would we like toss a game away if you have this opportunity? But I mean, if, if you really think that, this Knicks team has the Cavs number enough that they can win this series. Maybe you're starting to look already at like, it'll be beneficial next series to have those guys going too, because the next round would be presumably the Milwaukee Bucks, which would be a heck of a challenge. And if you want even a, a snowball's chance against them, you're going to need to get your whole team operating on all cylinders. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think my thoughts would probably be to, Try to and, and I mean it was kind of a little wonky in this first game because Brunson got in foul trouble. That kind of for I think that was part of what forced IQ into sort of that uncomfortable game is that he he came in not at the time he thought he was going to you know wasn't working with the guys he normally does and I think he kind of messed up his rhythm a tiny bit. Even if he has experience with the starters, obviously from starting a number of games this year, I think he just kind of had an idea of what his role was going to be, and then it kind of got thrown out the window once. Brunson got in foul trouble and that's no excuse obviously but I think my strategy would be kind of empower quickly a little more off the bench try to get him comfortable and then play that like that like mixed bench unit with Grimes and RJ out there with him as well um, along with Obi and Hartenstein and really just try to let those guys run and gun and put up a lot of shots and try to give them at least like a six seven minute stint in every half that they can really try to get themselves right. Because I think those those five players work really, really well together and their strengths work really well off of one another. And it seems like Josh Hart is most likely going to be closing halves anyway. So I think that's kind of a golden opportunity at that like end of first quarter, beginning of second quarter stretch. You could really get these guys a lot of time together and, and kind of put them in a position to to promote uh, promote each other getting you know into a rhythm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great point because I, I I think people tend to always underestimate just how much of a shift playoff basketball is. Where you like obviously Emmanuel quickly at this point like like pretty accomplished NBA player like probably um, due to uh, some severe Boston media bias um, probably going to finish second in six man of the year voting this year. That, that that's a, that's a bona fide that's a bona fide NBA guy right? Um, but hasn't really accomplished anything in the playoffs in his career. And I, I think the pecking order almost gets reset where we saw he came out um, initially and was, was really aggressive trying to get to the rim, uh, took one bad fadeaway, then threw away two passes. And then from that point forward, like he he didn't really do anything when he came in the third quarter, at least at least on the offensive side of the ball and, and just didn't look like the guy we've come to know over the last 40 or 50 games. And you saw him, especially when he was out there at the same time as Randall, like he was he's kind of kowtowing to Julius and saying like, all right, man, this is, this is your show. You're our guy. Take us home. And and I do think it would be good to, to some extent, take the pressure off of him by playing him against his Cavs bench unit. That's totally anemic, um, but also put the pressure on him by saying like, 
hey, you're the number one guy. Like, there's no one else out here. Like, maybe RJ, but there's not really another guy who's going to create a ton of offense. So you you got to go do it. And that's kind of how he can get his sea legs. I mean, I, I think that's that's what you were getting at. Um, RJ, I guess I would push back a little bit on the idea that um, he, he didn't do anything in this game. And I know, I know it's not what you're saying. I know you're just saying he didn't shoot well. But uh, again, I, I said it last night, but I, I thought the process for him, particularly in the first half, was really good. Like there, there were just a bunch of different times where he was able to just drive, whether it was off a steal um, or in the half court draw two defenders and just make the next pass. And a lot of times he didn't translate directly into an assist, but sometimes that was just because of missed shots, like Obi Toppin airballed a corner three that RJ got him wide open. And then there were other times where he would drive, kick it out, and it would lead to a hockey assist. Like he'd one, rotated out to Josh Hart on the left wing. Hart immediately pushed it to Randall in the corner. Randall had an open lane to go get a layup because it forced a tough closeout from Mobley. Um, and, and then in the third quarter, um, this is um, something we're going to get into a little bit more later but there's some nuance in terms of how the Knicks use different guys screening for Brunson Because what the Cavs did is when the Knicks used a shooter like Grimes to screen for Brunson, they would just stick with Grimes and they would accept the switch. And and that's an invitation for Jalen Brunson to go one-on-one against one of Darius Garland or Donovan Mitchell. When RJ would screen, they would put two on the ball, leave RJ alone and say, you want to throw it to him and let him shoot at three, be our guest. Um, And in the first half, that kind of flummoxed the Knicks in the second half, they let RJ roll to the rim. RJ caught it on the run whipped a pass out to the corner, um, and it led, again, to a hockey assist. And I, I think maybe a dunk for Mitchell Robinson on that play. I can't quite remember. But the point is, Alex, you get RJ with momentum going downhill, allow him to make simple decisions. I think good things are going to happen for him. So for RJ, it's not even necessarily about him scoring. Like I, I just don't think this is going to be a, a big scoring series for him. Um, it's more about empowering him to be a playmaker. And, th- and that's not that doesn't mean like throwing like a behind-the-back pass between three guys. It means just diving into the lane, drawing two defenders, and kicking it out. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I do think that if the Knicks want to find them best, their best selves in the series, they do need to find ways that he can score the ball. And I feel like, unfortunately, to your point, because of how great the rib protection is for the Cavs, that's going to require him starting to hit threes, which has been his biggest challenge this year. He just has not been able to hit the three consistently. He goes yeah. through stretches where he shoots 45% and stretches where he shoots like 10% for you know a number of games. And so... I would just hope that he would be able to find that in himself, although it obviously wasn't there in the first game. Um, but to your point, I mean, I, I don't think that he was like an overall like huge negative or something in the first game. It's just there are others that are going to be greater positives unless he can start scoring the ball. Uh, because I, I think that Grimes and or quickly are going to figure that out at some point sooner than later. And that's, that's really going to mean that like RJ needs to do something more than just pass the ball and, yep. and, you know, make good decisions. He needs to actually be able to put it in the hoop. And if, if getting inside is his only way of, of doing that, and he's not able to do that effectively in this series, then he's going to be in trouble as far as like playing time and being able to find ways to close games. If, if one of, or both of quickly and Grimes really kind of figure themselves out, which that, uh, that I guess is like the last part of this equation. How do you get quickly in Grimes going and Grimes? I don't know that you really have to do anything other than just hope that he gets comfortable. Right? Like I didn't hate what he did in the first game at all. I thought he played good defense. He was drawing the assignment of Mitchell or Garland on most possessions, depending on how things went Hart guarded Mitchell for, you know, uh, parts two. And we'll talk about uh, ways that we think that both those guys can improve on defending Mitchell a little bit in the next segment. But, you know, on offense, I liked what he was doing. I liked the process. Like he kind of just did his normal Grimes thing of 
getting great spot up opportunities, shooting without much hesitation and, you know, occasionally putting it on the floor and, and getting in or whatever. Maybe that's the thing that I would love to see a little more is try to see him attack closeouts if the shot isn't falling and draw the the bigs out of the paint for the Cavs and see if he can, you know, force it into Mitchell Robinson or something like that's a really good way to get Mitch involved as well. And, you know, keep him engaged on offense and, um, you know, ready for for lobs or for just a quick pass inside and a dunk. Um, but otherwise, I, I didn't have a huge problem with how Grimes played. Quickly just needs to be less tentative. I mean, he, you put here that he was going too fast. I kind of agree. But he also was like over-processing, I felt like. I felt like he was getting the ball and then best quickly and best any basketball player, really. But especially quickly is when he gets the ball and he already has his plan figured out. And then he just enacts it. And in that game last night, I just felt like he was getting the ball and taking just that extra half second that makes everything fall apart. And that was kind of leading to cases where guys were getting to close out on him better and he, he wasn't reacting as well to that, um, you know, where he was making passes a half second too late. He had a couple turnovers on just passes that were well-intentioned, but just were like a half second late and let the defender uh, react to them too much to get a steal. So I think he just needs to work on kind of slow, slowing his brain down, but also in a weird way, speeding his brain up and, and you know, just being ready for situations as they arise. Yeah, I'm I'm with you too, and I I think it's also it's a great point on RJ because we saw things really open up in the fourth quarter after RJ got subbed out, which to be fair was only with like two and a half minutes left in the game. But if RJ is not making threes, you're going to see the same defense that the Knicks are playing on the Cavs guys play it on the Knicks, right? Where where Cleveland just goes all out to pack the paint, and they're going to say, "All right, like you you want to beat us with Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson going to the rim? You're going to have to get through Jared Allen." Isaac Okoro and Evan Mobley all at once. And you have Grimes out there. You have quickly out there. Even if those guys aren't hitting the Cavs, like it's, it's it, the series would have to be 80 games for the Cavs to start leaving those guys, because there's just not a lot large enough sample size when you have two shooters as good as them, two shooters who have been as good as those two have been the last 10 or so games of the season um, to try and leave them. It, it's not going to happen. So obviously you hope the shooting picks up for IQ and Grimes, but I, I think the more important thing is the perception of their shooting shifts the floor in ways that allows Brunson to have room to operate, Randall to have room to operate, and and Mitch have room to to make hay off of dump-offs or lobs, which we're going to get into in just a sec. Um, but before we do that, I want to tell everyone about our friends over at Prize Picks. Um, I think for game two, so Tuesday night, I'm going to be taking um, Emmanuel quickly, what, what we're talking about right now, bounce-back game, over 15.5 points. I'm taking Jalen Brunson. I think Cleveland's going to force him to be more of a distributor. Over six and a half assists. I'm taking Julius Randle back to full health, playing more minutes, over nine and a half rebounds. Um, so how does prize picks work? You pick two to six players, and if they go score more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. And the beauty of it is there's no competing against other people. So, you know, those guys live in their parents' basement, have spreadsheets and stuff. You don't have to worry about them. It's just you against the projections available. They offer projections in any sport that you could possibly watch. Seriously, they go deep. Tennis, MMA, boxing, disc golf, Euro basketball, cricket, and more as long, along with the big four and all the big college sports. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. So download the PrizePix app or go to prizepix.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code locked on. If you deposit $100, PrizePix will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Price picks will give you $50. So don't forget to enter promo code lockdown and sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. All right. With that, Alex, we're back 
on Locked On Knicks. So let's continue um, these adjustments um, the Knicks need to make in game two. Um, and you put one in here that I am in heavy agreement with, and that is uh, stick to Donovan Mitchell more and continuing to be physical with Evan Mobley. So, so this is a little bit more defensively centric. I, I thought the Knicks got let off the hook a couple of times in the first half where Darius Garland got open threes and they went in and out. And then especially late in the fourth quarter, I mean, there, there was that one play, I think it was 95, 93. It was right after Hart hit the three to put the Knicks up and, and Mitchell got wide open right wing for a three. Julius was, he might've just been exhausted at this point in the game, but he, he wasn't even close to where he was supposed to be. And Mitchell had one go in and out. There were two or three times I counted where Mitch didn't get high enough up to the level. And the whole point of this Knicks defense, Alex, is even, even though the guy scored 38 points, you are absolutely going above and beyond to sell out to get the ball out of Donovan Mitchell's hands. If Isaac Okoro has 10 feet of space, so be it. If Evan Mobley's rolling to the rim and he gets to pick out a cutter or try to find Jared Allen, so be it. You are trying to stop Donovan Mitchell from taking pull threes at all costs. By and large, the Knicks, I think, did a really good job of that. He was six for 16, which is good. Not as good as he can be, um, but there's still room for improvement there. Yeah, I think that they really just need to work on getting over screens more when they're defending Mitchell. And, you know, maybe this will this will come into play more with Garland if they initiate more through him. But Mitchell was the one that was dictating the action the most in this game. I mean, he was the guy that they were just like, we're going to put the ball in his hands. We're going to let him go to work, especially late in this game. And the Knicks got burned a, a number of times. Like, during that stretch where the Cavs eventually took the lead, it was mostly because they just couldn't stay on him. It was just like a simple you know, pick up top and, and, you know, Josh Hart was trying to get under it. Mitch wasn't cheating up enough or Hartenstein or whoever happened to be out there wasn't cheating up enough to bother Donovan Mitchell at all. And he was just like, well, all right, then I will just take a three because that's what I do. And then he made a number of them. And that's the sort of stuff that can really burn you. And that's like, when you're talking about a guy like Mitchell, he gets one or two of those. And then all of a sudden he gets in a rhythm and he can hit it from anywhere. And then you got to be defending him five feet behind the three point line. And, you know, defending him as close as you possibly can, like you pretty much have to block him because he's got that long wingspan. He can get a shot off really high uh, and, you know, just has basically unlimited range and unlimited ability to get shots off with a millimeter of space. So you don't want to let him get comfortable at all. And that's going to require getting getting over those screens, trying to fight over them, make the Cavs guys that were kind of sloppy at times, make them stick a leg out or something, make it become an illegal screen and get a call. You know, I, I think that's going to be key as well. Or, and you wrote this down, and I totally agree with this too, have Mitch or Hartenstein get up a little higher. And we saw this, I, I've brought this up like a hundred times, only because it was so weird in the moment that it stuck with me ever since. But like in their late season game with Portland, the Knicks did this on Dame where they were like, okay, Dame is like the offense right now. We're going to actually have Mitch or Hartenstein like, hedge up and and really actually get up on him on the perimeter which we never do and then quickly have you know it, at that point it was Emmanuel quickly mostly if I remember correctly but you know have Brunson or whoever because honestly especially if it's like Evan Mobley setting the screen or even Jared Allen to be honest neither of them are like huge dudes you know that are gonna massively overpower someone who's a, like short but pretty stout like a Jalen Brunson um you know, just quickly have Mitch shade up if they pass it to Jared Allen, for example. Mitch will have enough time to get back down there because Jared Allen especially doesn't really have, like, the softest touch in the world where you have to worry about him from 
much further away than right next to the hoop. So then just have Mitch quickly get himself back down there. Then if they want to try and kick it back out to Mitchell, hopefully Brunson or quickly is already back out there and up in his face again. Yep. Or if it's if it's Quentin Grimes or whoever, like Quentin Grimes, all the better. You know, that works even better in that case, or Josh Hart, because they're even quicker to recover and even better, you know, as as like a, a you know defender like that. So I think that would be my strategy. Like they just gotta if they can figure that part of the equation out and keep Donovan Mitchell from being like a 30 point per game scorer, this series might be over even quicker. You know what I mean? Like because if he can't be putting in that amount of points, I think the Cavs are gonna be in trouble even if some of these other guys step up a little bit. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be such a swing factor um who who on Cleveland steps out or steps up and what adjustments JB Bickerstaff makes to make life easier on those guys, but it, it's kind of what I was talking about earlier like you can as a coach, you can put in little adjustments and say, "All right, um when Mitchell's doubled like that, Isaac instead of just being parked in the corner, we're going to have you be cutting towards the rim. And then we're going to be setting a back screen for Evan Mobley. So he's going to be coming up for a lob. And then you just have to throw this simple lob pass. In the regular season, that adjustment might work brilliantly. But you already have the degree of difficulty so turned up in the playoffs that all of a sudden those adjustments that should be simple, when you're doing something new under the pressure of the playoffs, it tends to fall apart unless it's very innate. And if there's one factor that has me confident in the Knicks winning this series, it's that guys on Cleveland are going to be asked to perform beyond what they did in the regular season. While it just feels like everyone on the Knicks, it's like, if you just do your job, like that'll be enough in this series. And that's not really what I thought it would be like coming into this series. Cause I, I just saw Cleveland had some very clear advantages that at least on offense, Alex didn't come into play to the same extent that I thought. And look, I, I think someone like Harris Levert, who was one for seven, I, I think he's going to have much better games in this series. I, I think Dean Wade, who, who went 0 for one on a wide open three, like he's going to have a game where he makes two or three threes. I think Isaac Okoro, who shot, I think it's 42% from three since January, granted on like two and a half attempts per game. I think he's going to have a game where he hits two or three threes. And the Knicks, they might lose those games, right? Because they're, they're making the gamble essentially that four out of seven times, those guys aren't going to make those shots and that's going to be enough. But look, if I'm, if I'm the Knicks, like to your point on game two, kind of being like a tested game, I'm not making an adjustment until Cleveland forces me to make an adjustment. You are continuing to sell out to absurd degrees to stop Donovan Mitchell. And you you see the Knicks, this, this was something um, I saw Benji note, I saw Ariel note. The, the Knicks were were helping um, on the strong side. So that means they're helping from the side where the ball is. You usually don't do that in the NBA because that means for Mitchell, it's the simplest pass in the world to just throw it, whatever, 15 feet over to the corner to a wide open guy. But Cleveland couldn't make the Knicks pay. And in, until Cleveland's other guys make the Knicks play, in those situations, um, nothing is going to change. And and I don't see why it should change for the Knicks. Yeah, I'm totally there with you. And hopefully, I mean, the, the number one thing I think that the Knicks need to focus on on defense is just going to be making Mitchell's life harder. And hopefully they watch the tape three times and figure out some ways to make that happen by Tuesday's game. Uh, we have a few more things to get into here, including uh, – keeping roughing up Evan Mobley, uh, working on on Mitch stepping up and, and being able to play a more complete game and making sure to exploit the best matchups for Jalen Brunson on the Cavs in just a second. But real quick, I do just have to let everybody know that today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. And if you're looking for a delicious snack but don't want all the sugar and calories, you need the best tasting protein bar ever. That's Built. You got to try them. If you're like me and you want to make healthier snack choices but you don't want to compromise on taste, 
I really have just the thing for you. Built Bars and Built Puffs. Built Bars are healthy and taste amazing. Seriously, they taste so great that you won't just you won't think they're good for you. Uh, that's because they kind of look and taste like a candy bar. They're covered in 100% chocolate. They're chewy on the inside. They're like surprisingly sweet for the uh, low amount of sugar that's in them. I don't know how Built really pulls this off, but it, it really does give you a candy bar experience unlike some of those other bars that are dry and chalky and covered in gross chocolate. These are covered in 100% real chocolate and have a really chewy, tasty inside. Um, and the best part is, is that they have really great macros in there as well. Uh, you're only getting 130 calories and 4 grams of sugar, but a whopping 17 grams of protein per bar really helps you recover after a workout at the gym or whatever it is that you may do. Uh, even just a long day, sometimes you just need a protein boost. They're, I find they're good just in the middle of the day when you need a little pick-me-up and a little extra energy. Uh, and the good news is now you don't have to wait to get a box for years. We've been talking about ordering Built Bars at Built.com, but now you can get them at your local Walmart or Sam's Club, and uh, you can still get specialty flavors at Built.com. That's right. Head to your nearest Walmart today. Walk to the pharmacy section and grab yourself a box of Built Bars. You can pick up a four-bar box of cookies and cream, double chocolate, or coconut puff. And if you're close to Sam's Club, run in and grab a 13-bar box with the hit flavors brownie batter puff and churro puff. You can thank me later. All right, Gavin, we're back in, continuing talking about the uh, adjustments that the Knicks can make. And I th one thing that really stood out to me, especially like I saw some, I saw some clips circulating uh, on Twitter today showing just like the stuff that you don't necessarily look for in the moment, just like on, on free throws and whatever, uh, when you're just kind of watching the ball, but the things that are going on under the hoop in the trenches and Evan Mobley took a bit of a beating in this first game. I saw uh, that's good. Yeah. Where Randall was just like, I mean, he pushed him fully out of bounds <laughs> while boxing him out. And that was in the disadvantage spot going for a rebound. Like he was in the, the second box uh, while his own teammate was shooting and just absolutely annihilated Mobley just by sheer strength. Um, I, I think that's something that the Knicks need to focus on. Like Mobley clearly is very talented. Um, I was talking in the Strickland discord last night during the game and I, I, likened him to like at least what I can see the shades of is like a potentially like Chris Bosch type player with all the sliders turned up. I mean, especially on defense, he's just, he's like lanky. He could be everywhere all at once. He seems to have a, a good handle and, you know, good scoring chops from pretty much anywhere on the floor. He's clearly very talented, but he's also clearly not quite up to snuff as far as size for being in the NBA just yet. Um, you know, he's, he's still pretty thin. That's why they have him at the four, you know, because he can't quite handle that, that banging nature of the five position just yet in the NBA. I think the Knicks just need to keep roughing him up. I mean, it's clear that it got to him a bit in that first game. I mean, he was, he was having rebounds snatched out of his hands. He was, he seemed like he was not sure handed even on relatively open rebounds because he just was kind of shell shocked. Uh, and waiting for that person to come out of nowhere to shove him or grab a rebound from him again. And it, it made him uncomfortable on offense, too, because it seemed like he just never really got an easy look and never was able to establish good positions. So that's that's definitely one of the things that I want to see the Knicks continue to do, because I think that we both said independently on our preview shows that we do with the Locked On Cavs guys, like Evan Mobley could be a big factor in this series. And you know, taking him out of it is is a big thing for the Knicks because then it essentially comes down to just uh, Mitchell and Garland as the main offensive options for Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, the Knicks did such a good job just 
almost convincing him like it, it was kind of like a, a mind uh f word um on him where like they they just like they were like yeah you're, you're gonna be passing every time you get it on the short roll right because they left guys wide open and at times that was almost too appealing of an option and he probably should have gone all the way to the rim and then didn't and then the few times he did go all the way to the rim the knicks did such a good job contesting like mitch tipped one of his lobs one time ended up skimming off the rim um and, and i think julius when he grabbed, there's another time where he he did get all the way to the basket. Hardenstein met him and got a piece of the shot, like over and over again. Like they were able to just use their bulk, and, and that's really all you can do against Mobley, right? Play straight up, and sure, there, there's a couple of times where where he's going to dunk on your head. Like he he did it to was was it on Mitch? Like the first or second play of the game, like he had a really vicious one, and I mm-hmm. I was kind of like, oh no, this dude this dude's ready, right? Like we're we're watching young KG here, and then he didn't really show up the rest of the game. I, I think if you're the Knicks, maybe this is part of the impetus to win game two. You, you want this series to be over before he finds his confidence because the dude is just absurdly talented and you don't want to see the fully unlocked version of him. Granted, I think the more likely scenario is that a year or two from now, but sometimes with young stars, they have those great games ahead of schedule. Like Donovan Mitchell is a great example of it. I remember his rookie year. I think they were playing the Rockets and look, that was like a five game series because Houston at that time was an absolute juggernaut, a team that would have won an NBA championship if not for Golden State. Um, but Mo, But Mitchell had like, just just some monster games going toe for toe with James Harden. So I think Mobley, he's going to have one of those, maybe two, but the Knicks end this series in five versus getting to a game seven. You rule out the odds of, of everything just clicking for Mobley all at once and, and him dropping 30 on the Knicks in a game seven or something. And then you're out of the playoffs and, and everything sucks. Um, but I think a related note to that is, is the Knicks still relatively young center in Mitchell Robinson, who um, is not a rookie, but is a playoff rookie, Alex, uh, Played 26 minutes, finished with six points, eight rebounds, five offensive, uh, two steals, no blocks. Um, I said it last night, but I thought it was pretty clearly a tale of two halves for him. Um, he just didn't look focused enough in the first half. Gave up a bunch of offensive rebounds. Um, didn't really – I know he missed a lob dunk. That was early in the third quarter at the end of what was actually a really good sequence for him. Um, and, and then defensively, like there were times where, as we noted, like he didn't get up to the level of the screen. And against Donovan Mitchell, you better get up there or he's going to be putting a three in your eye. Um, and I, I think you just need, however long he's out there, he needs to be playing at his best. And if he's not, Tibbs is going to go with Isaiah Hardenstein and Hardenstein's playing great. So you don't lose much, but I, I just think there's a window where Mitch can just dominate this series with his physicality. And again, if Mobley gets going, if Allen gets going, if Mitchell starts putting his head down, trying to get to the rim a little bit more, you're going to need Mitch's rim protection. Even as good as Hardenstein is in that respect, Mitch is just on another level. Um, he's going to have to win the Knicks some games in this series, as good as Hardenstein is. And, and last night, I, I didn't think it was quite good enough. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think that it, sort of like what I was talking about with with Quickly earlier, I feel like Mitch was in some cases just like a, a half second off last mm-hmm. night, you know, like just with his timing. Part of what makes him such a great rebounder is that he's so good at just finding that right moment of, okay, you know, it's, it's time to stop playing defense and get ready for the rebound now and, and box this guy out. Or it's okay. You know, the, the offensive action is complete. This guy's about to shoot time to get in position for that offensive board. And it seemed like he was just kind of like reacting rather than being prepared in the game, which then led to some of those offensive rebounds for Cleveland, which, you know, honestly, I didn't expect them to get nearly like the Knicks actually didn't crush them in offensive rebounds. It was mostly on the defensive glass. Like uh, the Knicks had like, I think 15 offensive boards. Seven, and the Cavs yeah, 17. I got it up right 17. Now. And, and the Cavs had what, 12? 13? They had 11. 
11. 11. Okay, but still more than you would think. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I, I think the Knicks' goal should be to hold them under 10 offensive boards every game. Like, the Cavs are not a good rebounding team, and that is very obvious. And Mitch, I think, was the one guy that I don't think was quite up to snuff in that category, and we mm-hmm. kind of saw that early on. Like, the Cavs yeah. were able to establish some things early on because of the fact that they were able to get some second opportunities and, you know, put the ball back into Donovan Mitchell's hands, put the ball, put the ball back in Darius Garland's hands. And you got to limit those as many times as you can. You want them to have as few possessions as possible, uh, period, because, you know, the, the more chances you give them with dynamite scores like that, the more chances you have to get burned. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think Mitch definitely needs to needs to like just kind of tighten the screws a little bit. You know, I, I don't think it's I, I think to your point, he had some good moments and he had some really good sequences. He's just got to let the game totally slow down for him and and be ready and, you know, not let the the stage get to him at all. Um, I think to to move to a ne- another thing that I think would be pretty key for the Knicks here, uh, and we could just sort of rapid fire these last few. I don't think there's a, a ton of meat on the bone here, but like one little thing that I noticed, I went back and just watched all of Brunson's shot attempts because I was, I, I wanted to just remind myself of who was on him for each one and, you know, how he reacted to those matchups. And I mean, the announcer said it down the stretch, you know, like Clyde noted it, Breen noted it. I didn't listen to the ESPN broadcast, but I think I saw that they noted it as well. Like Osmond actually did a half decent job on Brunson down the stretch. And like Okoro did anywhere from like meh to like pretty good. I don't think that I, Okoro certainly wasn't affecting Brunson in the way that I think that we thought that he potentially could if he was able to stay on the floor more. Um, but he did okay uh, on Brunson. But I got to say, like, every time that Brunson got Mitchell or Garland on him, it was over. Absolute game over. Like, those guys cannot guard him. Because the reality is to guard Jalen Brunson, you cannot have someone on him who is roughly the same size as him. Uh, because he's just he has too many moves. He creates, like, like whole feet of separation. Just yeah. his start-stop ability and, you know, his turnaround game and – everything else that he has going for him, like he pulled so much of that out on Mitchell and Garland that they could not close in enough to make him uncomfortable. And he was, he just murdered them for mid range and on step back threes and everything else. Like you need extra length on Brunson if you want to disturb him. So if I'm the Knicks, whether that means, you know, setting up more screens, I think this actually, this actually goes into what your next point was going to be, but like use some, some unconventional screeners, you know, use like Quentin Grimes, use, um, you know, Julius Randle, even, you know, like guys that aren't necessarily just like your typical, like one, five pick and roll, like use some of these other guys and generate some switches and get those, you know, if they're hiding uh Garland on Grimes or something, get Garland on Brunson because Brunson is going to annihilate him. Um, And, you know, just create those opportunities as many times as you can through some creative screening. Yeah. And I, I think one way you can get more of those matchups is by having Brunson and Randall play a couple of minutes when Mobley is in as the lone big man, because then you don't get like the issue with Randall screening for Brunson normally is that Mobley, who's probably like again right there with Jaron Jackson Jr. and Anthony Davis is like and, and Bam as, as the best switch big in the entire NBA. Like that, that's not quite as easy for Brunson as as it would typically be against a bigger guy. But if you do it when Mobley's the lone big. Mobley's going to be guarding the center and instead you're putting Dean Wade in space against Jalen Brunson. And that's easy. Um, but to your point, I mean, I, I look, I, I said it earlier. I'll, I, I don't want to belabor the point. Like it, things are easy when Quentin Grimes screens for 
Emmanuel for not Emmanuel quickly for Jalen Brunson. Um, one because he's a good screener. Two because he's he's been shooting so well. You you can't really leave him. And it's the same thing you you always see with the Warriors, right? When when, when Steph screens for Clay, like. You're like, all right, what do you do there? Because you can't really leave either of those guys for a second and you have to switch it and Steph will go to work or Clay will go to work on a smaller score. It's a little different because Grimes doesn't quite have that one-on-one game yet, but what he does have is that shooting gravity. And and and, and you for, you're going to force the switch pretty much every single time. And if the Cavs decide to get risky there and say like, all right, we're going to try and keep whether it's Levert or Coro or, or Osmond on Brunson for an extra second, then Grimes is going to get wide open shots. Or hard closeouts. And if Grimes gets hard closeouts, we know what he does to hard closeouts, right? He torches that every single time he gets to the rim and he's able to drop it off to someone um, for an easy assist. So I, I think the Knicks can do a lot with that. Um, and again, even even when Brunson is just is, is playing with other guys, and whether it's R.J. Barrett or Josh Hart, those guys can make hay, rolling towards the rim, catching in a four on three, and just spraying the ball out. Because the Knicks, I mean, th- this is something they did so well in game one having really pinpoint ball movement, making quick decisions. And and I don't know. I, I just want the ball in Josh's heart, Josh Hart's hands with an advantage um, as much as possible. And, the, and then the only other thing I had um, too um, was uh, just using off-ball actions as a pressure point relief. Um, this I'll, I'll, I won't belabor it, Alex, but the point is um, the Cavs are incredibly good at forcing turnovers, right? I think post-All-Star break or maybe the whole season – led the NBA in that aspect. The Knicks were really, this, this was something I saw Benji in his film breakdown uh, point out. Um, I, I saw when I was watching the game, the Knicks were able to take advantage of little backdoor cuts. Like Josh Hart had a beautiful one for a layup. Emmanuel quickly had one when he was trapped, where he just slipped it to Julius Randle rolling towards the rim. As long as you have sharp off-ball action, and you got to make very intentional passes, because quickly turned it over twice, just throwing, just assuming that he had an advantage and just throwing the ball up in the air, and, and, and the Cavs' help defenders were able to get there. But if you make sharp, quick passes... The Knicks are going to be playing four on three all game long, and, and they've shown they can take advantage in those situations. Yeah, uh, and here's hoping they can make all these adjustments and more because surely the Cavs will have plenty of things to adjust on their own uh, to try to take advantage of some of the things that the Knicks uh, put on the table for them. So we'll see how it all goes. We don't have to wait too long since game two is on Tuesday, but still a little longer to wait. But we've got uh, plenty of good episodes coming up for you guys this week. Uh, plenty, obviously, covering every game as it happens and trying to get some new perspectives in here and, and all that good stuff for you. So until next time, though, thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all soon. Peace out.